Hello, listener, and welcome to Encounter Podcasts. My name is Leon Thronis. I'm uh, pleased to be your host today. Uh, we're going to look at uh, s- just some great thoughts today. Uh, church life uh, is a wonderful life. It's a breath of fresh air in life where we can fellowship and worship and speak about our faith. But most of life is lived in the secular sphere. And sometimes that sphere doesn't really want to hear what we think. So how do we navigate in that setting? And we're going to springboard off of this a little bit today uh, with my guest Chuck Strahl. And I'm really looking forward to our time. Uh, Many of you will know Chuck from his uh, public life, his time in government and in the news in Canada here, um, uh, during which time he served as Minister of Agriculture Uh, Indian and Northern Affairs and Transportation, as well as Deputy Speaker of the House of Commons. And uh, interestingly, Chuck's son, Mark, is currently serving as Conservative MP for this area. So, Chuck, it's just great to have you here today. It's good to be here. And uh, I'm looking forward to our time together. Uh, I'm just interested, before we we, uh, get into our thoughts for today, um, as former Minister of Transportation, and we've we've had all all of this transportation infrastructure interrupted or destroyed in the last little while what have your thoughts been yeah. from that perspective well you know I, I've normally in, in uh, when you're dealing with infrastructure and improvements and so on you're looking at tripartite agreements with federal provincial local governments mm-hmm. it takes you know, often years of planning you get all the engineer studies you you're weighing uh, you know provincial wants versus federal needs and and so it's a long, convoluted, uh, you know, bureaucratic process, or you try to please as many people as possible. In the middle of a crisis, of course, <laughs> in one flood, it all gets thrown out the window, and people just start spending money as they must uh, to get through the emergency. So it'll be interesting to see. And I can now that the it's it's peaked and kind of starting to ebb a bit. Mm-hmm. You can see some of the lower levels of government uh, now saying, you know, exactly who's going to pick up the tab for this because it's not, it won't be very crystal clear. And so people are doing what they have to, but there's probably no funding agreements in place to cover it. So it'll be, I'll be part of a convoluted post uh, infrastructure negotiation, I'm sure. I'm sure that will draw out. And we also have the whole issue of cross-border responsibility for this whole thing. Yeah, there'll be some of that too. But, you know, the, it's uh, when you're dealing with the Americans, you know, it's like, you know, you can, so you're waving your fly swatter at their cannon, you know. So they, <laughs> they'll do what they, what they want, but it likely, certainly on infrastructure, won't be anything. That's my guess. They'll, mm. they'll cluck cluck about the Nooksack River and too bad it overflowed its banks. But, you know. That'll probably be about that. <laughs> all right, you heard it here. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, uh, it's uh, it's great to interview Chuck, uh, you, Chuck, uh, as a brother in Christ today, and we're going to kind of, you know, hone in on that kind of experience. But uh, first of all, just kind of orient us to your stage of life and tell us a little bit about your family. Um, just just kind of where you're at at this point in your life. Right. Well, I'm I'm pretty much retired from. From working life now, and uh, you know, I sing that Beatles song, you know, when I'm 64, and uh, so it's things have changed, of course, quite a bit. That means in the last uh, 10 years for me, it went from you know just helter skelter life of endless meetings and and uh, a calendar that never quit, and then slowly it didn't happen all at once. I you know I kind of eased myself out of it over a number of years and. But now it's uh, you know more emphasis on family, church, and and uh, grandchildren than uh, than it used to be, and that's been a good change for me. You have so, a couple of grandchildren. Yes, we have thirteen of them: three <laughs> three girls and ten boys. And uh, and if you ever wonder about the difference between the girls and the boys, just invite them all over into the swimming pool. And just see who makes the most noise. I can give you a hint that the boys win. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great time of life, really. It is, yeah, yeah. And apparently, they still need you and still feed you when you're 64. Yeah, well, so far so good. I, but I'm I'm keeping my act pretty clean here right now. I don't want to get uh, on the wrong side of anybody. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. Um, so, tell us a little bit about your your faith experience. How did you how did you come to know Christ? Was that recently or a long time ago? Uh, tell us a little bit about that. 
Well, I grew up in a Christian home, uh, but, you know, we didn't really have a home church because we moved so much. You know, we, we went to church, but we, you know, I, I think it was in seven or eight different schools by grade four. You know, wow. like we, we traveled wherever work took dad. And uh, so, you know, we generally hooked up with a church somewhere, but it's not like we put plowed a lot of roots, you know. Yeah. It, it was just, uh, we went and it was expected and we did that. And and uh, that's both good and bad. You're kind of like an army brat, you know, you, you mm-hmm. get used to moving a lot, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. the downside is you don't put down a lot of roots either. So that for me was fine. I was, you know, one of the middle kids. so. You know, I was protected by oldest and youngest, mm-hmm. and uh, and that meant you know childhood was good for me and everything. But it wasn't really until we had children of our own that we started to take things spiritual, spiritually very sen- uh, serious. Mm-hmm. It just, uh, in fact, it's, it was Deb who said that you know I was totally willing to just drop the kids off at Sunday school and go for breakfast, and she said, well, if we're going to drop them off, you know that's and that we think it's serious, then we should probably do it too. So we actually started in Sunday school, adult Sunday school, as young couples, and um, and attended in the old church uh, over on Henderson Avenue, and we we attended there for a while, and and normally didn't go to church. We we went to Sunday school and uh, avoided church because we picked up our kids, and and uh, on one particular occasion, it's not like I wasn't versed in Christian chatter, you know, like mm-hmm. I I knew all about it in a head space way. But it was actually uh, it was a communion service, and my, I didn't know that, but my dad invited us. He says, why don't you stay for church, and I'll take you out for lunch. Well, you know, for guys that you don't have any money when you're first married, and dad asks you out for lunch, well, that's a pretty, pretty tempting offer. So we sat in at church, and no sooner sat down, I saw that the communion table was out. And I didn't know a whole lot about it, but I knew this was a moment of decision, as they say. And uh, Pastor J.T. McNair from the old church was in the pulpit, and he he uh, explained it in a very succinct way that this is one of those moments where if you're not a Christian, you pass the plate by, that's fine. But if you are and you and you have accepted what Christ has done for you, then you know then we invite you to take partake in the elements. And uh, so that was my Christian moment. I between the time that the plate started at the front of the church and it used to work its way back down the rows, and uh, between the time it started, I knew it was decision time. And uh, by the time of the plate got to me, I'd prayed uh, to accept Christ, and that was uh, that was my first communion. Was about like thirty seconds later. Oh. <laughs> and. No one else knew that was happening in that. No, no, I don't know if I shared it with anybody at the time. I mean, the, you know, it's, it may be a good reminder. That you assume the people that come to church and, uh, you know, know the language and stuff that they're Christians, but they may or may not be. You know, they, uh, we, the joke used to be, you know, I don't uh, smoke, I don't chew, I don't go with girls who do. But, uh, if you know the language, you know, you can fit in pretty good, mm-hmm. but it's not to say you're a Christian. You might be just a person that knows not to, you know, drop the wrong kind of words in the middle of a, mm-hmm. of a sermon, you know. Mm-hmm. Yep. So just a reminder there, if you, in my experience anyway, is that uh, we were good church-going folks, but not Christians. Somehow it has to work down from your head into your heart. That's right. That's that was that was the step, and so I'd had lots of chatters. You know, I'd heard hundreds of sermons probably by the time I got to that stage. But not, you know, it was all kind of interesting and so on. But I, that was a decision moment. Oh, what a moment! Yeah. Have you had any mentors along the way? Any any? Well, uh, a fellow you might be familiar with, uh, <clears throat> Pastor. Uh, Thronus, <laughs> your dad oh, was dad. Uh, was a mentor. He was the one that really uh, challenged me to, uh, you know, to get, I think, to be more engaged. You know, like uh, he, we were there. We were we were kind of in the outskirts of a very active group, which was called Young Couples in those days. It was a big group and very. It was thriving, and we had a good bunch of people and so on. And uh, and uh, Pastor Harold, he pulled me aside at some stage along there and said, why don't you, you know, I think you should join the elders board. And you, I was like gobsmacked, you know, because wow. I had I'd been a Christian for a few years, but I was, 
you know, maybe 30 years old. Oh. And uh, I thought, no, there's got to be, if the church has got 500 people in it, there's got to be 400 of them more qualified than me. And uh, I still feel that way quite often. You know, frankly, it just, it's just like, okay, I'll, I'll do it and I'll do my best. But I would have, he actually said, I says, I'll help you. He says, I'll, he says, it's a, it's a big step. But he says, I think you should do it. It'll be a growing experience. And, and uh, I think it'll be good for you. So he, I don't know how or why I agreed to that, and and I got into the, I got on the elders board at his kind of at his request, and uh, and it was good for me. It was good, you know. Any time you get stretched and have to think and learn and uh, and action the stuff that you've that you've thought about and learned, it was it's good for you, and it was good for me at the time. But I, I it was a he was one of the ones, um, and. Uh, Probably Pastor Friesen was another one because he was the head of our young couples group, and he was Ron Friesen. Ron Friesen was inf- influential as well. We, we became quite good friends with them, and they and they brought it more. He was our age, so he it, he kind of made it more realistic. Like mm-hmm. you know, this is church life, and this Christian life is not about perfection. You know, mm-hmm. it's about a relationship, and mm-hmm. and uh, Ron helped us, uh, helped me anyway, to see that that he you could be real without you didn't have to put on airs. Mm-hmm. You could be a real guy and still be a Christian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, two pretty special guys. Yeah, they were, and and those were there were others, of course, as I've come along to. Or Preston Manning, my former political leader, was is a is a fine evangelical guy, and. And as a, we might talk about him a little later, even about about his influence in in uh, trying to navigate that matrix between politics and yeah. Christianity and day to day life. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, he's been, I think, a, probably a mentor to a lot of Canadians. Yeah, I think he. You know what, what he what was so different about his appearance on the on the scene. Uh, federally, uh, his dad, of course, was a pastor mm-hmm. and uh, and premier of Alberta for many many years. But at the federal level, you know, to meet a guy like Preston, it was kind of was really uh, it almost shook them up in the establishment. You know, he was it was a fine he was a fine man with a with a good heart and is still mm-hmm. and a fine brain, like a great mm-hmm. brain as well, a good thinker, and uh, and so he had a way of expressing things that. That was, you know, kind of explain things for the average guy better than than they'd seen before. So he he could explain faith and politics as an example, but mm-hmm. many complex issues uh, mm-hmm. he could reduce it to layman's language, and that was very useful. Yeah, yeah, I just find him very sane. Yeah, and and you know, I, I can still remember, uh, you know, some controversial things that came up in interviews or scrums and with the media. And they would come after him, you know, tooth and nail. And what about abortion? You know, they'd say that was about every year they would just attack yep. him on this. Yep. And Preston, in his kind of a twangy voice that he had, he'd just say, well, for those that are concerned, you know, there's a four-step plan that I see that would have to be addressed first, you know, the Constitution. And he would start, <laughs> he would just start laying it out. And by the end, the reporters would all be nodding their head like, <laughs> yes, that's true. Like, regardless of your position on the subject. He, he just had a thoughtful way of bringing yeah. you along. Uh, yeah. Good guy. Uh, okay, let's talk a little bit uh, about your personal devotional life. So you accept Christ personally, and now you walk with Christ personally. Um, tell us a little bit about your personal devotion, devotional life. Tell us about your the spiritual habits that work for you. Right. I think we all <laughs> learn as we've gone through this uh encounter series we learn things from each person's devotional life yeah i've i found you know it may be i don't want to call it spiritual i would hate to call it laziness because that would be a bad thing but in a (laughs) in a protestant work ethic environment yeah yeah. but uh, i found that over the years that you know my best times are when i i just commit myself to a something like a commit myself to doing a devotional Commit myself to teaching a Sunday school class. Oh. Commit myself to the elders board. You know, commit myself to to different activities, to being part of the church choir or, a, yeah. or a church play or a, 
you know, our visitations to seniors or whatever it might be. And and in that commitment, I find that it just forces me to prepare. You know, so it's, uh, when I was in Ottawa, for example, I eventually, I went to the, the, we had a weekly prayer breakfast with, it was an all party thing where different Mm -hmm. people, different parties would meet. We'd have a, it was a pretty, you know, I wouldn't say it was particularly challenging moment by moment because people had to be trying to, Mm-hmm. You know, there was Catholics and Protestants mm-hmm. yeah. and all yeah. kinds of different people. So you, yeah, everybody was careful not to offend, but at least we're, we're together. We had mm-hmm. breakfast and all party things, so it was an unusual thing. And eventually I became the chair of the National Prayer Breakfast. And and even that was it. say, well, do I really have time for this? I say, the answer is no, I don't have time for this, but I signed on. Because when you sign on, then a bunch of things happen. You you have to chair the weekly prayer breakfast then you have to arrange the national yeah. prayer breakfast annual event with all the hundreds and hundreds of people that come from across the country and you have to arrange for speakers and yeah. you have to go through a agenda and you know I just found I found for myself that uh, this is not unusual for me in general but it's specifically on on uh, getting into the word or being or more focused on it or more strategic about it is I ha- I sign up for stuff and when I sign up, yep. it happens. And, you know, just yeah. I just make sure it happens. And uh, and if I don't, then I think, well, I don't have to do it as much today or this week or whatever, because yeah. you know, there's no nothing get nothing on the horizon. Yeah. And so I I find personally that's the best way for me is when people and that's why when I look back at it when I said yes to the elders board the first time, you know it was a it was a good thing for me because the easier thing to be would say, well, you know I I think I best be more learned or more steeped mm-hmm. in Christian culture or mm-hmm. whatever I might have mm-hmm. said. Mm-hmm. But when you say yes, uh, same as teaching Sunday school or teaching, I used to, we used to teach, Deb and I taught uh, college and career for years. Uh, you know, when you sign on, then good things happen. Mm-hmm. Deb used to be an Awana leader, good things happen. You know, you just, you sign on and then by engaging that way, I find that that's been the kind of the best of my learning and devotional times. Wow. Uh, so around here we talk about, you know, how you grow in Christ if you are encircled with other Christians, how if you have encounters with God, and if you engage in ministry. And really this is how you grow, is when you're engaged. I agree. I, that's Well, that is for me anyway. Yeah, I, yeah. I think I do think there's a tendency, and I was like this in the early years, where you say, well, like I can't be on the elders board. You know, you've got to be like old, wise learned mm-hmm. Bible school graduate, uh, mm-hmm. you know, having written a book on the subject mm-hmm. and blah, blah, blah. You know, you, yeah, you, yeah. you make a list in your head and say, well, no, it's about really, uh, it's about a willingness to serve. Yeah. You know, you somebody's, somebody says, it's really a, it's a God thing. You know, somebody taps you on the shoulder and says, the church needs you to teach a Sunday school class. And you should say yes. You should yeah. just, you should say yes. And then when they, because when you say yes, It'll be good for you and good for the church, but it's a it's a moment when you, if you say no, you know it's just it's just easy to say no. Like, why should I be involved? There's other people. Surely there's other people, and and you, it's easy to say no, but there's almost no growth in a, in a no answer. So, listener, are you heeding what you're hearing here today? <laughs> well, it's not it's not a, it's not as much about your ability as your availability. Yeah. Because God doesn't pick people who are ace. He picks people who he can work through and be glorified through. And, the, and you know, the Bible is just, I mean, if, if the Old Testament is anything, uh, it's like, it's full of examples of people who said, don't choose me, I'm inadequate, yeah, yeah. I'm not ready, I don't speak well, yeah. I can't do it, I blah, 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 blah. You know, and it's like in every case, it's like, yeah, maybe, but I'm, I'm, I want you to go to work here. Yeah. And in every case, it turned out for good. It did. And, uh, you know, the ones that don't turn out, like, you know, we heard while about Jonah, you know, when, when he said, no, I won't do that, it turns out bad. Like, so I, I prefer turning out good. And in my experience, uh, almost invariably, it turns out well if you say yes. Wow. Good thought. Uh, okay, let me ask a little bit about um, how God speaks to you. You know, we're, we're thinking about encounters with God. Um how does God speak to you? Does he speak to you like all the time, once in a while? Um, have you had times when you just sensed, 
like you obviously described one in the old church on college right. in Henderson, where God tapped you on the shoulder and said, I want you to be mine. Um, talk to us a little bit about how God speaks to you. Yeah, I I think sometimes it, you know, sometimes there's a, a t- it seems like that. There's a, I don't have an audible voice uh, speaks to me, but I, it just seems like, you know, oh, this is pretty obvious. Like I'm supposed to do something. I, running for running for office, when we ran, when I ran the first time, you know, there was ab- almost no chance we were going to win. You know, mm-hmm. it didn't, like it was a new party. It was a reform party. It was a new party. Nobody knew about us. I was motivated by, I was angry at the federal government really at the time and plenty unhappy. And, and that's a good motivator, but it, but it didn't, I didn't think I was going to get elected. And yet I was quite sure that's what I was supposed to do. And it was one of those things when we, Deb and I have talked about it often that, you know, it's not an, an audible calling in the sense of, you know, I was at a service one time and I went forward to the altar and I knew, you know, God spoke in a deep voice. It was it was just like, I, we knew, Deb and I knew, we were in the right place. We were doing what we sh- should be doing. And I remember one time, and I was in, uh, I was in the the lobby in the behind the 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 uh, chairs that you see in the in the House of Commons on the cameras. In behind there's an area called the lobby, and the lobby area uh, actually met with uh, it was actually a, a member a pastor from one of the large Alliance churches in the country. They were there for some sort of event and um, and I met him and somebody introduced me and they said hi and how's it going I said well you know at the time we were in opposition for like 13 years and I was getting tired of it and and I said as much to him and he said uh, do you feel that God called you to this work I said yeah I did but I mean I you know he says has he called you away I said well not really well he says then get back to work like it was it was as if God had spoke to me Chuck you told me that years ago. I wrote it down, and I've thought about that many times. Oh. It just, it, it, that was a moment when he may as well have been God himself. Because yeah. it was, it was just, it was clear I was getting, not, uh, I wasn't getting bored with it. Or, that's not the word. It's it, I was getting, you know, kind of resigned to, you know, the day-to-day stuff. Mm-hmm. And I you know, thought, well, what's the efficacy of this? And what's that? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, then get back to work. And uh, within, you know, two or three years, we were in government. Wow. And it was, you know, he was, it was when I look back at that, that was one of those moments where he just came into my life uh, at a particular time when I needed somebody to, yeah. you know, to give a word, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't picking on me or anything. He just, mm-hmm. you know, he says, well, you know, if you're, if you're called to do something and you haven't been called to do something else, then get back to work. And and when I left politics, and I'd already had a pretty serious health scare and stuff, and and I'd still I'd stayed on for another five or six years after that. But at, at that time, I remember saying to Prime Minister Harper, I met him in his office, and I said, you know, God doesn't speak to me by you know He's not like the Wizard of Oz, like you know it's not a big deep voice coming from behind a curtain, not for me anyway. But I said, I have no doubt that my time here is done. Like I also knew it was, I said, I just, I don't need any more messages. <laughs> I'd had a health yeah. message. Yeah. I'd, I'd had a successful ministry, several of them, uh, not not uh, spiritual ministry so much, but a federal <laughs> yeah. Yeah. role and had, been, had had success at it. And I, it, an election comes around and I just knew it was time to step back and and really spend a little more time with my family that has had sprung up and and was growing my grandchildren all growing old without me knowing them. Yeah. So you're what you're describing to me about God's voice to you is uh, God has used other people. Yeah. Uh, he's used uh, circumstances uh, in your life uh, and he's used a settled heart about yeah. about things. And he speaks this way. I think too that sometimes, I, I th- and this may be partly of training, uh, or I guess it's training. But I think I find as time goes on that I see kind of uh, a spiritual dimension to things quite quite often that I may, might not have when I was twenty years old. You know, so for example, I'll read a book and I'll talk about a book and I'll refer a book 
to my one of my grandchildren, and it, I'm thinking in terms of here. There's some lessons to be learned here that are really spiritual truths. It might not be a spiritual book, you know. It might just be a novel, but I I find that quite often I I feel that it kind of jumps out of me. Like there's a lesson learned. There's a principle at stake. There's a, a you know, a, a rules for life living, you know, rules for living successfully. And you're going to learn this if you pay attention to this. And I, I think sometimes young people, uh, you know, I'm talking like an old geezer now, but I think if we're not, if we're not uh, sensitive to that, you know, you just, you read the paper and you flip the pages and you don't ever kind of let it settle in. And I think sometimes it's a habit I have, and it's partly because I've, I've had to do this publicly for so many years that I'll, I'll read it or see it or watch it, and then I, the principle jumps out at me. And it's, you know, after this many years, it's invariably a principle that's grounded in faith. Wow. So, number of ways that God speaks to you. Yeah. Not, but not every, not all the moment. Everyone's, every moment, let's not get ourselves. You know, sometimes I think, gee, I wish I was a little more clear here. Like, I wish yeah. I knew for sure what I was supposed to do. But it also has involved sometimes just simply, you know, I walk through a door and the door closed behind me and I can't go back. You know, <laughs> yeah. and that's, that's an unsettling feeling, but that means, you know, then open one of these other doors because you aren't not going back. Like when I left yeah. logging, there's yeah. no going back, you yeah. know. <laughs> so. Okay, let's segue just for a minute right. uh, from there to the role of the Holy Spirit in your life. Because, you know, one of the, one of the, ways that you said God speaks to you is through this kind of settled rightness in your life. What does it mean for you uh, to walk in the Spirit? Well, it's probably, you know, it's hard to describe because the spiritual things don't lend themselves to to, uh, language very well, but I think it is that sense that you, you know, in, in your living, in your walking, in your raising your kids, in your work, as you're going about it, you have a sense that you're you're in the right spot with God. Like you're you're doing this. It's not a you know you might be coaching the boys' baseball team, and it's not particularly a spiritual you know moment, but you are doing something that is in that in that action. You're you're training kids. You're you're mentoring them. You're showing a spiritual or a, you know your the attributes, hopefully, of God that you, that you hope that they'll pick up on, and so it's in your in the walk and day to day life, and that's whether you're retired or or having coffee with the guys or or uh, giving direction to a big ministry. You know, you everybody's whether they like it or not, they're kind of watching, and if if you feel you're settled in that, you're there's you're not at uh, odds with. The principles I talked about earlier, and the and the uh, you know those instructions that you receive in all those different ways from God's word, mentors, situations. If you're in sync with all that, then that's a good place to be, and it's a very comfortable place mm-hmm. to be. And it's a, in fact, it's a it's a, a remarkably comfortable place to be for me. I, I think I do think one of the problems. Uh, again, I hate to sound like an old timer, but you know, to quote Dr. Phil, who I never watch, but I know his one famous saying is, you know, how's that working out for you? Mm-hmm. And I think of all the people in this world right now that are anxious and worried and upset and unsettled and not sure and on and on, I think how you live your life is beyond me. I I don't know how they go through day to day. and And for me, I almost have none of that. I, I just feel I I do what I think I should do in sync with God's principles and word and and character, and it's easy peasy. Like it's like it's not always easy to do it, but it's as far as being confident, yeah. it's an easy place to be. You know, that's a powerful concept. Uh, you know, when the when the spirit is having his way in our life and and Jesus is Lord then everything in our life is spiritual it can be it can be it doesn't have to be associated with r- religious observance it, of course it is but not fully our whole life is spiritual which 
which now makes me want to move into the next phase of our time together. And that is talking about God in our career. So, so uh, most of us uh, have been or are involved uh, in a career, and many of these are secular, um, and and yet we're called to live the Christian life within this context. So, so you've alluded to it uh, earlier that you grew up in a forestry family. Mm. Um, tell us about that kind of life, that primary industry kind right. of life, and uh, what's it like to be a Christian there. Uh, yeah, just give us a kind of a window on that. Well, I mean, that's in those days at least. You no, know, this we're now talking fifty years ago when I started in the woods, and uh, a blue collar. Yeah, I was fourteen. Wow, somewhere okay. I was fourteen, and uh, uh, it's a blue collar world, you know, for sure. And it's, uh, you know, it was uh, in those days it would be described as a man's world, and it was. It maybe still is less so, I think, but but uh, you know. You were all expected to be a little bit like John Wayne, you know, like you, yeah. you know, you were tough and you, you know, the, and you, and you had to show that and you, you know, you had to be a certain mold and, and there was quite a bit of that. Mm-hmm. And my dad was maybe a little that way too, cause he was, you know, of course he's a generation older and you know, grew up in the war years. And so, you know, we looked up to dad and he was John Wayne and, uh, and and the guys expected you to be John Wayne, and I I soon you know it wasn't too many years till I moved into a kind of a foreman's role and so on because I was the boss's son, mm-hmm. and uh, and eventually after Dad passed away, we were my two brothers and I each ran a different logging show and and uh, you know it was, again it's you're you know expected to act a certain way and be you know tough and but uh, but in through all that I mean there was also there's also I think a, a, you know certain standards, certain expectations, how you treated people, how you, how you, uh, you know, how you asked people to do something or told them to do something, and and uh, and so on. And as years went by, I remember, I remember the odd time I'd do something and I'd be mad about something. And in those, you know, in, in that type of environment, you know, being telling someone what to do when you're mad meant raising your voice, pointing your finger, and you know. Basically saying, you know, there's that way down the road, or you can get back to work over here. Mm-hmm. And I want you to shut up. And you know, it was, it was a, a harsh, you know, that's kind of how it was. I remember having to doing that and blowing a gasket, if you will, and and then uh, going back to the cookhouse. I had a camp up at 20 Mile in Harrison Lake. Going back to the cookhouse, and I no sooner got in there, and I was completely unsettled. Mm-hmm. And I, I was there. I had a coffee, and I just felt terrible. And I actually got in the pickup and drove up to the mountain where the guys had gone to work and actually stopped the crew and apologized to them. Like, I, it was one of those things that was hard to do because, you know, you don't normally apologize in a blue-collar world. But I could tell I I wasn't, I hadn't acted very Christ-like. And, uh, and those kind of things, you know, the, there's lots of that. And, and you had to be careful not to be completely in that environment. Mm-hmm. And people are watching. I remember one time we were fighting fire. We had a fire up at uh, Hope, and we were fighting a fire. And when you have a fire, you have a whole bunch of unknown men uh, come on the job. They just come to help out mm-hmm. from everywhere. You might have fifty people mm-hmm. you never met before. And I was, I was waiting on the road, and up over the bank crawled a guy all sooty and you know pulling a fire hose. And I, he came up, and I was going to give him a ride up to the next spot up the road. So he got in. I don't know who he was. He got in, sat down. I said, I'll take you up to the next landing, and off we went. He reaches over. In those days, we had cassette decks in the in the the radio, you know, and that's what you played your music on. And he went over to it, and he punched, without asking, he punched my cassette deck, and out came the cassette, and he pulls it out, and he looks at it. He says, it's the Imperials, Christian group. You know? I, I said, yeah. He says, good. Put it down and got out. I never saw him again. But I just thought, you know what? That that guy, sight unseen, made a judgment call on me oh. based on the music that I listened to uh, on my cassette deck, and so you know it, it just that was always been a reminder to me that even when you don't think about it, people you never knew, they watch and they see how you handle yourself, oh. and uh, oh. it, it it was I must say it was you know the type of men that were in that business were hard and heavy drinkers and womanizers and, you know, it was just lots of pornography around. And 
So it's, it's a tough environment and tougher than most. Yeah. By the way, if you want to play Imperials on your cassette deck, I'm happy to ride with you. I really like the Imperials. <laughs> oh, of course, they don't make cassettes anymore, uh, Leon. But anyway. <laughs> what? Has something happened? <laughs> uh, so... So coming out of that environment and, uh, you know, as we move now to your experience in uh, federal politics, did anything in your forestry experience prepare you or help you in that next career? Well, uh, yes and no. I mean, uh, people often say, I've got to get a, I'm going to get a business person and I'm going to elect them to, because it's time we sent some business people to Ottawa. But you know, the, the better preparation for Ottawa was my time on the Elders Board. Because on How the, so? Well, because the Elders Board, you know, what I, I'm in business, it's a little like the, you know, the, the, the Roman soldier. Like in business, I tell a man to go here and do this, mm-hmm. and he does it, or else, or else, you yeah. know. Yeah. But in a church, you're dealing with volunteers. You're raising money from volunteers. You're, you're, collectively executing a plan that you are only part of, a small part of, and you can't order people around. And I found in Ottawa, the people that were used to ordering people around often fall off the back of the turnip truck. They they don't understand. You have to bring people along. You have to, you have to, you know, sometimes you cajole them and sometimes you, you know, you, you lecture them, I suppose, but often and mostly you have to bring them along. You have to, you have to explain and mm-hmm. and give them time to digest it and maybe find a better way to communicate it. And this goes on and on. And that you have to do that a lot in a church. And it's it's a difference between between uh, rounding up a herd of cattle and driving them ahead of you and being a shepherd and providing yeah. for the sheep yeah. to follow you. Yeah, that's. That's a good analogy because they, you know, you uh, often say, quite often the, uh, you see with much fanfare in Ottawa, there'll be a big city mayor come to town. Well, the big city mayor is used to being the big kahuna. You know, like he's the big cheese. He's, he orders people around and he sets up committees and drives the agenda and good on him mm-hmm, or her. Mm-hmm. Well, they come to Ottawa and they find out there's 310 other people there just with the same driven uh, attitude as you got. And if you think that you're going to step in as the new bright light and and start ordering people around, well, they'll just <laughs> they'll send you to the back bench because you you know almost all of the skills that you need are skills that you need in a in a volunteer organization. Yeah, yeah. You have to you you have to raise money. You have to you're selling your idea. You're convincing people to come with you, or at least give it a try. You're you're hoping to motivate people. You're you're selling memberships. You're mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. the sort of thing that you do in a volunteer organization, or even in an extension, uh, in a way, with a church, where you you can't order people to go to church. You you hope to to win them to that. You and you and then along the way, you you hope to find their giftedness and put them in the right places. And you so politics is is more about judgment than it is about training. Like you. Mm-hmm. You have what you really need is people with good judgment because you know the circumstances will change, the the cast of characters changes, the all the opportunities and and pitfalls all change. So what you need is people with good judgment, and and somewhat same in the church. You know you you hire a pastor because he or she is is great at what they do, and then COVID comes along and they all have to do something different next week. So you hope you hired people with good judgment. Because the skill set you hired them for is important, but it all of a sudden less important than their ability to go with the flow. Wow. Fascinating. Okay, let's get into a little bit of your experience and in leadership. Uh, Because many of the listeners are working in a secular culture. And really, Canadian culture is getting more and more secular. And yet, as, as a politician, as a federal politician, you're representing all the people. And you know, you're, you're representing people who will have different uh, points of view uh, spiritually than you or different, uh, they're, they're, they're uh, uh, on different ends of the spectrum than you, and yet you are to represent them all. How, how, did, you, how did you balance your personal faith in this setting with, with really that mandate of representing everyone? 
Well, early on, it was uh, it was probably Preston Manning, but it may have been Deborah Gray, another fine Christian lady, who was uh, elected with us at the time, and and has always been a great communicator, and and made the point that you know when you're elected, you're you're a Christian politician, but not just the Christians' politician. You know, and Christians sometimes don't get this. By the way, it's a little disheartening sometimes for a Christian to be in the in the front of things there, because they think, well, well, you know, I've elected this Christian guy, and and he's going to go there, and it's going to be like nirvana, like it's, mm-hmm. you know, he, people will just have to follow Christian principles, and they'll be quoting chapter and verse of the Bible, and say, well, in public life, you know, in public life, you represent everybody in the sense that. Somebody comes in the office, and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter whether they're a member of your party or agree with you philosophically or fought you in the last campaign, and they say, I've got an immigration problem. Well, you help them with the immigration problem. <laughs> you know, you, yeah. you're expected to, and, and I think the good ones do. Like, they just find a way to do that. On the other hand, you, you, know, you also have to be faithful to what you campaigned on, if you will, and that's a, you know, that's a, a good um, arrow to have in your quiver. Like if you just say, well, you know, people generally will try to, politicians will generally in, in office will try to do what they said they, what they promised, believe it or not. <laughs> so, you know, when, when we were in there as conservatives, for example, we said we're going to do away with the Canadian Weed Board, when we did. We were going to do away with the gun registry, and we did. And, you know, people tore their hair out. Some people did say, well, how could you do this? It's change, a massive change in direction for the, you know, this particular policy area. And you say, well, we campaigned on that. We said we were going to do that. And we're going to do it if we can. Mm -hmm. And you have to moderate it and (laughs) change it, adapt Mm -hmm. it perhaps. But I always tell people, you know, pay attention to what people say they're going to do in the campaign because they'll actually try to do it. And it may alarm you later, (laughs) but it should alarm you more in the campaign. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when when uh, you know you may or may not agree with Mr. Trudeau, if Mr. Trudeau says, uh, you know, I'm going to make uh, climate change my number one issue, and you say, well, why is he doing that? Mm-hmm. Say because he promised to do that. Mm-hmm. You, you know, if if you if you want to make the economy the number one issue, then you should maybe look at another party if if that's what turns your crank. Mm-hmm. And you and so pay attention to those promises because that is also something that a politician has to be true to, mm-hmm. and. And then the final thing I would say is that, you know, a lot of this conflict that will come between the policy, public policy initiatives, either of your party or, or that come up out of the blue, and yourself as a Christian, uh, you know, you, you need to think long and hard about that before the crisis hits, because there's almost no time to think about it when you're in the middle of it. You know, you, you need to say, how am I going to reconcile some of these things? And is there, you know, is there... Can I hang on to enough of a principle or an idea that I at least get, you know, make that obvious and clear or champion it? I remember one of the early ones for me, I was, we were in opposition and it had to do with reproductive technology. And reproductive technology at the time was quite controversial. It had to do with embryos and mm-hmm. eggs and, mm-hmm. you know, yep. the yep. future of life uh, in many ways. And, you know, I gave a, I gave a talk and... I remember I started off the talk in the House of Commons about it, said, I'm a Christian, and, you know, for me, life is precious. Starts precious, it ends precious, it's precious at every stage. And I think that reflects God's opinion of us. And then I went through the bill. But I didn't quote, you know, I didn't start cat chapter and verse on them. Mm-hmm. I, I pre- Whoops, I preambled that with, you know, this is, this is my position. You have to understand, something as basic as the building blocks of life you know, I, I, I'm going to come at this from a Christian perspective. And, you know, I took no blowback for that. I, you know, people accepted that. And I think, I think if I had gone on to say, you know, here, you know here's, some, here's chapter that proves my point, and here's the next verse, and talking to a bunch of non-Christians, of, you know, with the authority of Scripture, may well have been true, but I don't think it would have been meaningful to them. Instead, I think the, the principle was laid out. I laid out the principle. Here's what, here's why this is important to me. I'm a Christian. This is about life. I think life's important from beginning to end. And so that's why this bill is to get it right is critically important. And, you know, it's one of the reasons that thing bogged down and never was passed eventually. It was because it became obvious to too many people that it was too important 
just to gloss over and pass at first reading. You know, they, and eventually the, the government of the day, the liberals of the day dropped it. They couldn't get consensus even amongst themselves. But sometimes, sometimes you don't get your way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so what do you do with that? Because I, I'm, I'm hoping you, you as a listener are applying this to your personal setting in your career uh, if you're in a secular setting. So what do you, what do, you do with, with not being able to get your way as a Christian? Well, sometimes it's the little things. You know, it's, it's, uh, I remember one time we had a, uh, Lori, was, Lori Thronis was working for me as my chief of staff. That's my brother. Yeah. yeah. And he was my chief of staff. And, uh, and we, had a, we were told that we were going to have a plebiscite on the weed board because this was early days. We had a minority government, so we couldn't push through legislation. We had to, you know, try to, again, win consensus of sorts. And one of the th things we had was a plebiscite from the farmers. And there was a push amongst people, including in my own party, to say, well, you know, use whatever resources are necessary. And I, and I said to them, you know, I, at my first press conference, I said, we we're going to try to win this plebiscite, but I'm not spending government res resources on it. I mean, this is amongst the farmers. So I'll lobby for the side I think should win, but we won't spend government resources. And we got pressure to use government resources. He said, you know, well, come on, why don't you just find some funds and put some advertising out and do stuff. And and uh, it was just a bottom line. I would have resigned over that because you know, it was it just became clear to me when the when somebody else, an authority said, well, then use resources that you promised you wouldn't. And I said, well, I will not do that. And and uh, the only time I ever really got mad, I was known as a good natured guy, I think. I think so anyway, and uh, as a minister. But in every ministry, I had a blow up. And, and each time I blew up, I, it was because I had been given information from the bureaucrats that I got in front of a microphone and pronounced as the truth when it turned out to be lies. And uh, I said to them, I said, you know, all I've got to go on is my reputation as a truth-sayer. Like, I tell the truth. I'm a straight shooter. Like, that's my reputation. And if I get out and say to a First Nation group, negotiations are ongoing and negotiations have not started, you've made me a liar. And for the rest of my days, when I return to that First Nation, the chief can say to me, is this the truth or are you lying again, Stroll? Mm -hmm. So I said, if you make me a liar, I will, I will it's intolerable. Because I won't lie on, you know, to get my way or to try to push it through. And uh, in each case, in each ministry I was in, that happened to me. And I, each time I blew up, I, I, I felt I was justified in that. I had late at night called all the ADMs and deputy ministers and everybody in, and I said, I have nothing else to fall back on. I will defend you, but you have to tell, give me the truth. And then we'll decide what we're going to do with that. Mm -hmm. But uh, if I can't win the day or something, then I'll be honest about that too. And I found that especially with farmers and First Nations, is interestingly, they were, they were both two groups that were the, the, were the same. They would take hard news if they felt you were telling the truth. Mm -hmm. If they felt they were being spun, they were, they were relentless in their attacks, both groups. <laughs> and, and so I found, even if it was tough news, uh, the better thing to do was to tell the truth. And then, and then you, you might have followed, but the follow was not, you know, you were uh, two-faced or... Uh, yeah. Yeah. or disreputable. It was like you were it might be a hard apple and difficult to deal with or something. But but uh, I found I had good rapport with my stakeholders, as they called them, as long as I told the truth. And so that maybe that was one bottom line. And then and sometimes you know if something else happens in a ministry you're not involved with or in the government or in a portfolio or that you don't have any impact on, sometimes you just have to say, well, you know, you say your piece sometimes in private, and they say, well, I, you know, we have to do it because of whatever whatever reason, political or economic or whatever, and you say, well, you know, I just, it's not a, I haven't lied about it, I haven't, on back of my word, I haven't, you know, spun somebody some trash, but it's turned out that, you know, I don't like the decision, but, you know, I have to live with that. You know, so I hope, I hope, listener, that you will apply this to your situation. I think there's some really good stuff here. Like they say, you know, you you choose carefully which hill you're going to die on. Yeah. Uh, and 
And when you finally get to that hill, then you better be prepared to die on it. But don't die on too many hills. No, not exactly. <laughs> and, you know, Preston Manning used to say uh, another way to look at it is, you know, his, uh, he also often had Western uh, metaphors, and he'd say, you know, choose which wagon, wagon rut you're going to get into because mm-hmm. you're going to be there for a long time. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you, you may as well establish a reputation. You don't have to be a holier-than-thou stick in the mud, you know. Like, it's not that. It's just that, you know, your yay is yay and your nay is nay and you're, and you're trustworthy and you use good judgment and you don't cause the boss unnecessary hassle and you, you know, there's a bunch of stuff. Yeah. And then if, if you do, if you have to, if you feel, you know, this has gone too far, I think what they're doing is illegal or immoral or say, well, then when you stand up and say something, probably carries weight. Yeah. Good. Uh, okay. Uh, just a just a chance. I, I don't know if you uh, have any incidences here, but uh, incidents. But you know, God has His people everywhere. Uh, you know, like I love that verse. Uh, you know, where it says, "There's even a gecko in the house of the king." You know, <laughs> and you know, there's Christians everywhere. Uh, in your position uh, in transportation or agricultural uh, culture or Indian and Northern affairs, were there instances where you saw Christians making a difference for Christ? Yeah, I'd say more so, I mean, the agricultural community is, you know, it's kind of a down-to-the-earth, necessarily, mm-hmm. group of people. And there's, so there's lots of people of faith in the, in the farming community and in, the, in that it's kind of shot through the whole agri-food business, I find. So it's easy to find, you know, strong Mennonite communities and strong people, you know, people that spend all day on the tractor got thinking nothing nothing else but of big things and yes. you know they got hours and hours on their hands eh? yeah. and uh and i've often f- found that and you know it's surprising not maybe surprisingly uh in first nation circles lots of people of strong faith mm-hmm. come out of the blue you know they mm-hmm. just surprise you but uh in fact uh, one of the things i i say to christians if i you know, get a chance is is that you know if you listen to the kind of the heart cry of many First Nations people, you'll find it's all it's all in spiritual language. It's not, they're talking about forgiveness, about, they're talking about prayer, healing, they're talking about uh, uh, honor, uh, covenants. Uh, this, is, this is the language yeah. that they talk about. It should be familiar to Christians. You know, that, that's all spiritual stuff. And I think one of the reasons why it's difficult for governments to to uh, work on reconciliation because governments deal in lang- things like budgets and bills and yep. Yep. you know uh, chapter and verse of a, yep. of a legal argument and stuff and reconciliation is of the hearts of the spirit and I think you know I, I, I fear that they could fix every water system on every reserve in the country and we still won't be in reconciliation because reconciliation is a spiritual thing and so I, I ran into that often uh, lots of fine Christians too in the in the First Nation world, and I say less so in transport. Like transport's a business mm-hmm. transaction. You know, mm-hmm. you're. I, I always said that. Uh, you know, the transport minister gets run over by one of his buses. They just say, "Well, who's up next?" Mm-hmm. But but if your First Nation minister gets run over, the the stakeholders would say, "Well, that's too bad because I built a relationship with him." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so even relationships are are not something you legislate. You can't legislate good relationships. Yeah. And uh, and so that that tended to be more rewarding in that sense. And uh, I liked the business stuff because it was its own kind of exciting world too. But as far as uh, relationships and and that spiritual dimension of political life, uh, I found it more so in agriculture and in First Nation work. Mm-hmm. So uh, just a couple more questions uh, around uh, our our career and our faith. Um, so a lot of people hate politics. They shun politics. They don't want to vote. Uh, they don't want to be involved. And yet politics really rules our life every day. Uh, what advice or challenge do you have for the listener in this area? Well, assuming the listener is a, is a churchgoer, I'm just assuming this, uh, you know, I'd say first there's, there's no admonition in the Bible against being involved in politics. You know, there's, you don't want you want to be in the world but not of it. You know, you want to be... You want to understand what you're getting into, so you go into it with your eyes open and so on. And and politics is not everybody's cup of tea, you know. So, don't feel like you have to run for office, you know, just because 
you know, heard this podcast. But there are there are degrees of involvement, you know, and I think every informed person uh, that cares about the country or direction of public policy and so on has a has an opportunity to influence it in different ways. So, at a minimum, you should vote because voting sends a message that people pick up on. They pollsters notice it and and public policy people notice it and politicians notice because you voted and that may, it sort of means something and it's, you know, and when you total them all up. It, it also isn't a bad thing to get involved in the political party of your choice. Like you don't have to, again, you don't have to go to a convention, you don't have to, nothing, but you know, you, you know, look them over or see which party kind of lines most closely to where, what you're thinking about. And, uh, you know, for like for five bucks, you can be a member and they'll send you all kinds of information more than you wanted. Uh, but, you know, you can be informed. It's a kind of a political partisan and information center that will they'll keep you in the loop. And then if then you might want to get involved in a campaign or, or support a candidate that you think is good or or uh, or whatever. And then, you know, kind of the the big Enchilada is, you know, do you want to run for office maybe one day or be a campaign manager or something more mm-hmm. more involved? Mm-hmm. So those are all all things, ways to get involved. But I would say the biggest problem that I see in the evangelical community is that they don't they don't follow through on lessons learned in kindergarten. On <laughs> how so? And the lessons you learn in kindergarten is, you know, how do you play well in the sandbox? How do you how do you share? How do you when you are disappointed? How do you act? You know, and and Christians often they'll say, well, you know, my my I elected this lady. She went off to Ottawa, and I never talked to her again for like seven years. And then seven years later, she did something I didn't like, and I just roasted her. I sent a letter to the editor in the paper, and I went on Twitter and I blasted her. Boy, I taught her, and they say. And she has not heard from you in seven years. All the things that she or he has done on your behalf, all the the flack they've taken, all of the sometimes they take it full on. And what have you done? You've never thanked them. You've never said good job. You never said go back and fight another day. Nothing. The first time they ever heard from you is when you said, "I'd like to cut off their head and stick it on the pole." And uh, you know that's. That is a weakness that, because we've been taught or somehow instinctively think that it's politics is a dirty business, so I won't have anything to do with it. Say, well, then don't get involved. But if you see people out there in the front lines that are taking the flack for you, and you can't even pick up the phone or write a letter or send a note to say, you know, thank you for representing me. Thank you for taking that on that tough issue for me and you represent what I believe, then I think we failed in our, uh, this is an admonition from the Bible, is to pray for your leaders and to support them. Not, I'm not picking a party here. I'm just saying, you know, failure to do that is to failure to do our job as citizens. I just think it's, it's really, uh, and it's one of the reasons why Christians sometimes don't get involved, because they say, why would I get in there? Uh, all I catch is flack and never a thank you. Wow. And that's, uh, you know, there's a case, I shouldn't dwell too long on this, but there was a case here locally, and uh, one of our MLAs represented the party in, on a moral issue, and he voted uh, contrary to his party, and uh, like contrary to the leader, the party, the position of the, of the legislature, and he stood up what I think probably 90% of the people in this church believed. And I, uh, for some reason, I was asked to give a address here one time. I forget, uh, maybe it was a Canada Day thing or whatever. And I was pretty much in high dungeon because I said, so how many of you wrote a letter and said thank you to him for what he did and stood up for? I said, don't raise your hands because I'm going to tell you the answer. Not one person in this church said thank you to that man for going against his leader, his party, and the legislature, and every newspaper man in the in the province, and how many of you? And he and he represented you. And how many of you said thank you? I'll tell you, not one, because I talked to this guy, and I know he never got one letter to say thanks. But if he ever did anything wrong, they'll let him know. 
And that's, if, if nothing else, I encourage Christians to say, you know, it doesn't, it's human nature. When somebody does something that you approve of, just even, you know, he just came in out of the rain. I don't know what it is. He just did something simple, maybe, or he voted some way that you like, or he said something that you found yourself nodding your head. You know, take 30 seconds out and just go, hey, Joe, thanks for standing up for that. Appreciate it. Best regards, Chuck. And that will get posted on the bulletin board. I kid you not. In in Ottawa, because you get so few of those, you wouldn't believe it. Okay, so that is good advice from someone who has been there. All right, I want to uh, I want to wrap up our time, uh, and just maybe uh, uh, just maybe one question or two to close our time. So, as we've talked about before, you're in your second stint as an elder in our church. Mm-hmm. Once when you were younger, and now you're more of an elder. Um, uh, as you, as you, with uh, along with the, the rest of a really good board, what do you see in the church uh, as an elder this time around, and what's your hope for this local congregation? Well. <laughs> I mean, what is it, that ancient curse? May you live in interesting times? You know, it's, uh, I mean, there's been so much turmoil since COVID hit that uh, it's hard to kind of say what what path are you charting because it seems to change week to week. But I, I do think, you know, like I'm, uh, I, I do sense a generational change is happening in that um, part of, you know, part of communicating is, is communicating uh, effectively in the in the culture that people are in the milieu that they're in. Uh, sometimes I don't get that uh, right now. Like I must say, I, I'm not into social media. I find social media is a sewer pit of negativity and anonymous uh, backstabbing that I can hard, I can't stand it, so I don't go there much. Uh, but. You know, the truth is most people have to live there or they do live there or they have to, they feel they have to. They're part of their job or they're doing everything online. They, it's just part of what they have to do and it's how communication takes place. And I think, uh, you know, I think the church has to, has to wrestle with that and, and, uh, and communicate in that way as well as, you know, there's all the good stuff that happens face to face and it won't ever be replaced, I don't think. But... On the other hand, you know my my comfort level in in tweeting or blogging or whatever is you know is not what it. Uh, if, I, if I guess if I, if I was back in politics, I'd have to do it because that's that's how people communicate. So I think the church has to find a way to do that effectively, or else you know it's just not it's just not communicating, and I th- so I think that's part of it. And it's also it's also true that. Uh, in my age group and older, that uh, some of the things that we we were taught as youngsters and main and it's that way in my life to this day, is you know I don't share some things. Some things are not for sharing, like they're sharing to my closest group and to my mentor and maybe to my pastor and maybe a few. But I don't share uh, broadly like people do now about their everything they're feeling. I think personally it's gone too far. <laughs> I think people, you know, they just they want to they want to talk about everything that's on their mind the moment it hits their mind without thinking about it seriously or whatever. So I don't want to go I don't suggest the church that wants to go there, but I do think the church has to, to communicate in terms of uh, there's an awful lot of empathetic stuff that has to happen. It just it's just the world that we live in. And so when people are, are communicating, you know, kind of hard truths. It's easier if you just personalize it, expose yourself a little bit, quite a bit nowadays. And that's just the way it is. Personally, like I don't need it or want it or, or use it, and I can't. It's been taught out of me. Uh, on the other hand, I find, you know, people overshare and they over, <laughs> and they do too much of it, and then they can't they can't get away from it. It's like it, you know, what's on their mind is like causes anxiety and it's crippling to them. 
So some balance in there. The reality is there's no use pretending that the world's the way I like it. It's changed. So it has the church has to change too. And that means, you know, a lot of the communication is, is it's a generational thing. It'll be, uh, and, you know, for myself, I see Pastor Matt does that more than I did. He just does. It's just a natural part of a guy in his 40s because that's, that's a different way of thinking. And I think that's wise in the sense that if you don't do that, you're you're gonna you're missing the modern audience. I guess you know I'll just have to stay in the old fuddy-duddy category of saying, you know, some things are just true, and that's the way it is. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe one more question: uh, What's your hope for our country, for Canada? Well, I think I think Canada is. You know, if I worry, I, I always say partisan politics is, you know, I look back at it and I say, oh, I was quite often right and I was quite often, you know, mirac- marvelously wrong about things. But good public policy is different than partisan work. You know, good public policy transcends partisanship. And what I, what I see right now, unfortunately, is a blending of partisanship and public policy that's not easily separated you know it it used to be even 30 40 years ago it used to be that you know people would they could they could separate it out you know they'd say i'm gonna i want my party to win and i'm you know i'm gonna champion my causes and everybody would say here here and you know one party would win then it'd go to the other party and you know but what we have now is is a unfortunate dovetailing of political partisanship with public policy as if they're the same thing. And at times they may be, but quite often uh, good public policy transcends partisanship or should. And what I see right now, uh, my worry for the country is that increasingly we're seeing decisions made not on sound policy basis, but on partisan uh, rhetoric, if you will. And so, you know, I, I worry about that because if it's successful and it's proving successful, you know, current government's been elected three times. Uh, and if it's successful and continues to be success- successful, then that model will be taken up by everyone because success is followed. And if we get to that, then then you're not a lot different than Mao Zedong's China, where you were the government's policy and the partisan policy and the public policy and the neighborhood policy is all one. And opposition is opposition is not uh, critiquing the government. Opposition dies. So you have everybody says the same thing to get the same result, which is power. And they all have a partisan goal rather than a good public policy goal. And I see that time and again. And I... I, you know, I find myself shouting at the TV when the times when I watch it. I just think, you know, that that's all well and good, but it's not true. (laughs) So it's a uh, it's a complex thing to be a Christian in our modern culture, our Canadian culture. And uh, this has just been really good, Chuck, uh, to kind of have you weigh in on on that that balance and that blend. And uh, listener, I hope that you will take a lot out of our time today. Uh, my guest today has been Chuck Strahl. We've been talking about encountering God in a secular world. Uh, thank you for joining us today.